and welcome to Gloucester Vineyard Church's weekly podcast. We're creating a community that brings hope and joy to Gloucestershire, and we are thrilled that you've downloaded this week's message. So without further ado, let's hear the talk. Uh, just a kind of a mini introduction. So as you're probably aware, my name is Seb. I'm married to Isla, and so we've been married for 16 years um, in August. I just I had to do a quick mental check that that was right. And uh, we've got three daughters, so six, eight, and ten. And we have a foster daughter as well who's six months old. And I can report to you that sleepless nights at nearly 40 are different than when we were in our late 20s and early 30s. They definitely hurt uh, a little bit more and take just a little bit more out of you. So if I look tired, it's because I am. And if I sound tired, it's because I am. And I apologize in advance. Uh, We've been living in Gloucester for just over four years. We're in central Gloucester and on Stroud Road. And uh, for most of that time, I was the assistant minister at Mariner's Church, which is the the kind of little uh, chapel in the docks. Uh, but in October last year, started training uh, in the Diocese of Gloucester as a trainee vicar. So uh, that's what I've been doing since then and um, will be done in about a year's time. Uh, in terms of what to speak on this morning, when Daniel and I were talking about this a couple of months ago, we were talking about discipleship and just bouncing that around over a coffee. And so it felt like a good thing to, to maybe come and share this morning. And I know, um, and speak on this morning, and I know that the word discipleship conjures up several reactions. If you've been around the church scene for a while, it will feel perhaps like this is a term that we, we kind of often throw in, we often return to. And sometimes it feels like we we don't always nail what it means and what it looks like. For others, the word discipleship can be tied into some quite negative um, and difficult uh, memories. Uh, It can sometimes be tied in with that sense of heavy kind of leadership or heavy shepherding, to use a kind of an older terminology. Um, And for some, we just don't even know what the word means at all because it's such an unused word in popular culture that there's not really, I don't think, anything we can map onto in terms of popular culture that gives us almost a kind of a parallel, a mirror image of the word. Um, And what I would say is this, that I think sometimes the way we've handled it, particularly in evangelical charismatic circles has not always been helpful and sometimes without necessarily meaning to what we're actually articulating is when we talk about discipleship is almost this two-tier form of Christianity that somehow there are the believers and then there's the disciples there's those who came to faith in Christ and legitimately did that Um, but then there's those who took it really really seriously and scripturally that just doesn't exist. Paul doesn't use the word disciple at all, um, or disciples, or discipleship. Um, it appears obviously frequently in the Gospels and in Acts, but even there, the kind of the way that it's used is very much um, being a Christian. A disciple, by default, is a Christian. Um, a disciple is somebody who has made a decision, who's come in faith and convicted by the Spirit to follow Jesus. It's not somebody who kind of went to the second stage or found another level of Christianity or spirituality. Um, And so um, this morning, what I hope to do is just encourage us, wherever we are in that journey, if you're a new Christian or somebody who's been around the block uh, several years, um, that actually just kind of, again, kind of returning to this, I hope will prepare us well. My conviction is this, as we kind of come into this new season and we come out of lockdown 
and we return to perhaps some more familiar patterns, um, I'm reminded again that actually it is only when the people of God, Christians, people like you and I, have taken the call to discipleship seriously that we have seen communities uh, and cities and nations shaken, that we have seen wholesale revival, that it never ever comes separate from that. It's never come apart from a small group of people or a large group of people taking the call to discipleship seriously, taking the call to walk out what it means to be a Christian and to live that out seriously. And I know that it is our longing to see that in the city of Gloucester. And yet, history tells us it won't happen until we press into what Jesus has called us to. So when the disciples preach the gospel in the day of Pentecost, and there's 3,000 people knocking around who turn up for this kind of festival of an agricultural nature, and they hear the gospel and they respond and they decide to pursue what it means to be a follower of Jesus and they stay in the city and we see people added to their number daily. It's because they took what it means to be a follower seriously. Uh, when the early church is persecuted in Acts 8 and Saul uh, kind of goes from door to door and he's literally kind of just raging through the church and the church is scattered, what do we see? We see them committed. We see them living out what it means to be a disciple because we're told that they literally chat, they talk about the gospel wherever they go as they scatter into the different places and different towns and different regions. So there's this sense, and we can see that um, when we get through the Acts narrative as well, we can see it in the persecuted church, uh, how the church has grown and sprung up when people have taken that call seriously, places like Iran, places like China, and all the places that we probably are familiar with, in the revivals that we've seen even in our own aisles, uh, the Welsh revival, the Hebridean revival, it has always come because there have been people that have taken the call to know and follow and live out and tangibly see this resurrection gospel life it has always come off the back of that. And so for me, in preparing this message for you this morning, I've got to be honest and say, I am deeply convicted again of how I've let so much of this slide and how my heart at times has not been leaning into this and how actually I've been distracted by other stuff that's been going on. And yet, uh, like all of us, my desire is, is the same, to see our communities radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by people coming to know him as Lord and as Saviour in all of their lives. And so um, I want to look at a text uh, this morning just to kind of anchor us and then really just make three points. I'm not a fan of anagrams usually, but because this is by video and to try and keep it simple and to try and keep me on track and time, uh, I want to really just look at three ways of perhaps just pulling some things out of it. So if you have a Bible, uh, we're in John 15. I'll pick this up in 12, um, but I really want to focus on uh, what it says uh, around 16. But John 15 verse 12 says this. This is, my, this is Jesus speaking shortly before his arrest. So it's kind of um, this speech that he gives before this kind of monumental shift in the narrative. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruits and that your fruit should abide so that wherever you ask, so excuse me, for whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And the three things I just want to kind of pull um, from this kind of just angles to look at it is the first thing is knowing the second thing is showing and the third thing is going and I know that's a little bit gimmicky and apologies in advance but in terms of knowing um, verse 16 says this you did not choose me but I chose you I think so often uh, when it comes to living out what it means to be a Christian to be a disciple it's because we just kind of get slightly out of kilter, slightly off-centre in what the gospel is and what Jesus has done. And so often our language is language of, well, I made a decision to follow Jesus. So often the story that we remind ourselves of is when we prayed a prayer or when we came forward for an old school or perhaps we responded to an invitation through a friend or we did a, an alpha course or something like that that so often it feels like this whole relationship we have with the Father is of our doing. Now, uh, this morning, I have no intention of getting into the whole predestination debate. I'll leave that for Daniel to um, examine and explain to you all, uh, if he hasn't done that already. But what I do want to say is that the scriptures here are really, really clear, that Jesus says he chose us, he called us, and he appointed us. And that maybe, just maybe, that when it comes to how we relate to this God that we call Father, this God who simultaneously uh, relates to us in that way and yet has breathed out what's probably likely to be multiple universes of billions of light years across, that when we try and relate to him with this kind of 28-inch circumference skull and this lump of flesh called a brain, that perhaps we see that in a two-linear way. And perhaps it seemed more logical to us that we made a decision for Jesus, that we did this and we initiated it. But maybe it's something far more complex and beautiful and wonderful than that, that maybe he did choose you and he did choose me that he did appoint us, that he made a decision for you and for me. And the question is, well, why does knowing that make any difference to how we live this thing out? Um, a few weeks ago, my middle daughter, I want to be a bit careful because I think she might be listening, um, she started playing football. She's big into football. She hasn't really played that much, but she really, really loves it. So we signed her up for a local football team, girls football team, and it's been great. We've really enjoyed just going along, getting to know people and all that kind of stuff. And uh, after the first month, she won the Player of the Month award. And she was so pleased, but she's pretty sharp. And after she got over the kind of initial feeling of being really chuffed that she'd won this award, she said to me, did I just win this because I'm the new girl? And 
like honestly, I had to quickly do some kind of parental arithmetic or you know mental aerobics and think, well, what's what is she getting at here? And what she was getting at is, was this just something that happened, or did they actually make a decision that I really was the person that they were really going to choose to be the player of the month? And of course, as a good dad, I'm like, no, this is you totally deserve this. They totally made a decision. Uh, this was their choice. This wasn't just that you turned up and so thereby default you won the award. That's not the case. Now, I was kind of playing this through. If I had said to her, Lucia, actually, I'm really, really sorry, but, you know, great that you got the award. But actually, you could have you could have just gone and taken the award. You could have just taken it out of the coach's hand. Or actually, you got the award just by kind of a process and you did the process. Actually, I think that would have massively influenced the way that she engaged with the game. But because I was able to reassure her, and because she knew that actually she was chosen, that they'd made this decision, as minor as that seems, but as massive as it was to her, what I saw in the coming weeks uh, beyond that time was that she was more committed. I saw that she played harder. I saw that she was sweating more. She was running more. I saw that she was really committed in the tackle. I saw that when um, things didn't go well for her, she got back up and she kept going. There was something about knowing that she had been chosen. There was something about knowing that actually these people had recognised her that changed the way she played the game. And so, friends, this morning I want to say... Uh, the text is really, really clear. And there are times when playing the game, I find just incredibly tough. There are days where it feels incredibly tough to be a disciple. There are days where it feels incredibly tough just to be a Christian. And I've got to remind myself that this isn't all on me. This isn't just because I made a decision at some point to follow Jesus, but that he has made a decision for me. Uh, Philippians 1 says this, that I am, Paul says, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good thing in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord. And it is right for me to feel this way because you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, he says this, that he was the one who began a good work in us and that he will sustain us. Why? Because it's grace, that in his grace, he is going to keep working with us. And that because he chose us and because he called us, when the game doesn't go well and when it's tough and when things don't go for us and when things go against us and when we just want to come off or sub off or take some time away because we're injured, we can know that he has called us to this life. It wasn't just all on you and it wasn't just all on me. And I hope that knowing that will shape the way that we live this thing out. The second thing I want to say is show. There's a danger when we talk about discipleship that we lurch towards behaviour, that we lurch towards the things that can be seen, the things that can be observed, the tangible stuff that we do. And some of that is absolutely right, and we mustn't lose sight of that. James says that faith without works is dead. That there's something about faith, there's something about that happens internally to us because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us that should absolutely shape the way that we live our lives. It should be observable. Jesus says, if you love me, then you will obey my commandments. There's something about that that is incredibly practical and tangible. But the key here is that the knowing should inform the showing. 
that actually when we know who we are, that we know what Christ has done and is continuing to do in us, that that in and of itself will produce in us different thoughts, different emotions that will then produce different actions. And so um, keeping that in mind and keeping in mind that Jesus reminds us that he chose us, then we can begin to look at what it means that we show this, that we demonstrate it. And how do we do that? Well, the key thing is this. He says, I've told you these things so that you will love one another. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I find that really, really interesting, that having kind of reminded us of our place, having reaffirmed us and having told us that we are friends uh, and we're to relate to him differently than a slave to a master because we can actually know what his plans and thoughts and deeds are, that actually uh, normally that would lead on to some kind of five-point plan of mission and evangelism. But he says, actually, it's to lead on to your love for one another. If you've got your Bibles, you can quickly um, turn over uh, to John 17 and the great high priestly prayer that Jesus uh, prays just in in this discourse. And um, I want to read just quickly just one segment to you. Now, this is Jesus praying to the Father. And he says, as you sent me into this world, so I send them into the world. So there's something here about being sent. There's something about showing something. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you and I. Jesus here isn't just praying for the disciples who are in earshot of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm praying for those who will come to believe as a result of what they're doing, as a result of me sending them, that there are going to be people who believe. And that's us. We're, we're in a direct lineage of this very prayer that was prayed 2,000 years ago. Um, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a crazy, crazy prayer for Jesus to pray. He's saying that as disciples, we are to love one another. He's already said in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we're disciples by the way we love one another. He tells us in John 15 that our kind of identity in him is to be intrinsically linked to the way we love one another. And then in John 17, he said, by the way, that love for one another is to be so tight, it is to be so unified, it's to be like the way that he and the Father are one. But more than that, he says that when they are one, so the world will know that I came. You see, friends, the biggest and most important and the key way to live out what it means to show what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian, is not that we have our theology nailed all the time, as important as that can be. Or it's not to make sure that we sign up to the right 
things to do in church life as important as that can be or that we hang around other people who are incredibly similar to us or that we say the right things in the right time or that we have all our kind of ducks in a row and present this kind of neat tidy lifestyle of christian church living that's not what's going to lead others to know that jesus christ came in the first place he says the thing that's going to make it real the thing that is going to talk to the community that you're in and is going to convict people that I came in the flesh is by the way that you love one another, by the, the unity and the oneness of you. See, it's not even about how good our church services are or how good or bad our sermons are. It's not about how good the worship is or how good our youth ministry or kids ministry is and all of that stuff is so key and important but if we don't understand that the showing is rooted in our love for one another all the other stuff will be off kilter jesus says the primary way that you show this is by your love for one another it's by your oneness and your unity and as i'm saying these words i know that it's easy to let them go in one ear and out the other but i want to challenge you as i've been challenged this week are you walking in that are you pursuing that? I was chatting about this to a friend just this week and we were just reflecting on this text. And he said, yeah, but what does it look like? What does it look like to be that unified? And of course, we can we can see some clues, right? We can see the fellowship of the believers in Acts 2, 46, 47, and how they had all things in common and how they had this kind of one unified purpose. And that absolutely should be a clue to us of what that looks like. But as I've wrestled with his question this week, I've just come to this place of realising that actually it's an important question, but it's not the first question. The first question is, do we believe it? Do we actually believe that our love for one another is the most important way that we are to witness to others? It is the most important witness of Christ to a community around us. Do we believe that? And if we believe that, are we submitting to it? Do we actually ensure that we take this word literally and that we apply it to our lives? And so when we're tempted to gossip, we're like, no, no, I can't do that because that's not seeking that oneness and unity. When we are tempted to speak badly of somebody, when we're tempted to let just conflict rumble on without actually dealing with it properly and seeking peace, Are we allowing this to really grip our hearts? And it is my deep conviction that if we don't do this, that all the other methods and for all the books that have been written on mission and evangelism as good and wonderful as they are, when we don't allow this to shape and grip us, friends, I think it's in vain. I think it's in vain. That's been my experience so far to date. And so what does it look like? to love one another in this way, to be unified in this way, to be one in the way that Jesus seeks for us. I want to just backtrack a bit and say, well, firstly, do we believe it? I think if we believe it, I think if we let it shape us, I think the what it looks like will kind of come anyway. I think it will, uh, I don't know, almost like kind of, you know, watering a plant or something, you know, If you do that bit right, the growth and what it looks like will come naturally or supernaturally in this case.
So there's something about knowing it. There's something about showing it. And then finally, um, it's the go. It's the going with discipleship. And again, coming back to this text in John 15, it says this, I have called you friends, all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. I've got to tell you, if I was in on this discussion, uh, this talk from Jesus, and I'm part of that group, I know what's going on in my heart right now. I know that I think we're about to form the greatest holy huddle, like the greatest kind of team of Christians ever formed. And that this is going to be kind of skipping and lollipops uh, for the rest of life, that we're going to love one another deeply, that there's going to be this kind of unity and oneness. And then he mixes it up after affirming who we are, after telling us that we're his friends and that uh, he's chosen us and that we're to live in this love. He then says, and you've got to go with it. You've got to go. Uh, this is not just uh, for the purposes of forming a holy huddle or a wonderful church group or a great small group or a really, really cool Bible study or a great worship band that actually this is for the purposes that you will go with this, that being a Christian by definition is to go, is to go to other places, to meet other people, to have other conversations and to see fruitfulness in that. I know um, that can be a massive challenge to us. And um, just thinking about that, I think, uh, just over the last week or so, um, I think the cultural oxygen that we breathe, it's, it's good just to be aware of some of the cultural narratives that surround us, this oxygen that we breathe. Uh, sometimes it can be so insidious that uh, we, we lose sight of it. Um, one of the, the biggest selling uh, money-making industries right now is the self-help industry. If you go onto Amazon, tap in self-help books, there's over 100,000 titles. If you go to Bastions of Truth like Cosmopolitan, they've got their, their top 20 self-help books and titles range from things like You Are a Badass um, to The Happiness Hack. Um, lots of them have swear words in the titles, so I, I'm not going to I'm not going to say all of those. But all that to say, the oxygen that we breathe in right now is that you should do you, uh, that you should look after you, that you should take care of you, and that that needs to be your primary focus. And I want to be really careful and say that there may well be people watching this and listening to this that you do need to take some time to heal and to um and to rest and to take a step back but i don't think um our issue generally in church life is that we're all rushing to do too much i don't think the pendulum has swung quite that far that we're having to tell people to calm down and to take more rest and i think the reason for that is the cultural oxygen is that we need to be primarily concerned with ourselves and yet the scriptural narrative is this, that we're to be primarily concerned with something bigger. And I think the, the truth that we find so hard to see is that when we are invested into something bigger, that when we are prepared to go, 
that actually our own problems, our own hurts, and certainly this has been my experience, that actually we find incredible healing in that. And it just seems counterintuitive, but isn't that the kingdom? That so often things are counterintuitive. If you want to be a leader, you need to be a servant. If you want to be first, you have to go last. And if you want to find healing and joy and rest and wholeness, it occurs in this place of being a disciple who goes, who takes what they have and takes it to other people, who lives out this life of being a Christian, a follower of the way of Jesus in their places, in their workplaces, communities, around the dinner table, sports clubs and all that stuff. And I think one of the other ways that we kind of got this wrong is that so often that feels like the work of the minister or the leader or the pastor or those who have theological training and uh, and that it should happen in certain places that actually the going part um, only happens in church meetings or only happens when we do missional programs or evangelistic strategies. And my encouragement to you this morning is that the going part happens in all aspects of life. If you have your Bible handy, just turn with me quickly to Deuteronomy 6. I think it is. I hope it is. Um, Deuteronomy 6. And we'll just pick up in verse 4. It says this, Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So there's a sense that the way that Israel understood these really chunky theological statements, by the way, the Lord is one and you're going to love him with everything you have. Um, that this, this is something about this that is to be articulated, it's to be spoken, um, that they are to know this. But then it goes on to say that you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. That actually this isn't to be taught in the context of programmes or by professionals. This is to be taught around the dinner table. This is to be taught along the way. In other words, um, uh, in kind of normal rhythms of life, that you can do the going bit of being a disciple um, whilst you're doing the shopping down at Lidl or wherever else it might be that you choose to get your shopping. Or it might be whilst you're watching a kid's football match, that it could be that you could chat with somebody or you can invite somebody into that. You see, I think when we think about discipleship, we make it so complex and we make it the property of the experts and we completely do away with the gift that we have in the body. And that's you and I. And so, friends, um, the going bit, whether you are a new Christian, maybe perhaps it's just having an initial conversation with somebody and telling them about what Jesus has done in your life. Uh, but the going bit, whether you're experienced and it can be opening the scriptures to somebody and working through some stuff. It happens in the normal rhythms of life. It does happen around the dinner table. It absolutely happens in the workplace. It absolutely happens in social spaces, in sports clubs, in gyms, around hobbies. It happens there. And it's a case of simply articulating what Jesus has done for us. It's the going it's the taking 
of the knowing. It's the being involved in the community of the showing. But then it's the going part, going to those who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Uh, I want to just share a word with you, and, and maybe maybe it's uh, for the church, or maybe it's for individuals, or maybe it's not at all. Maybe this was just for me. Um, but something that really just pressed on me this week. Um, I was talking to a mate of mine who runs a cricket team, and I've got to be honest, I am not a cricketer. So any sport that involves taking a jumper in case you get cold, I think loses its legitimacy as a sport. Um, apologies for any cricket fans out there. But um, uh, he was telling me about his team. And exp- and I know that for those who know cricket, this is e- extremely obvious and you're, you're looking at me with suspicion, disdain right now, but I'll just say, I didn't know this. Um, he was telling me about when they play cricket and it's usually kind of like 20 overs, um, when it comes to the batting, they have to, by rules, put out um, a certain order of batsmen. So it's all men in their team, and obviously it'd be the same for a ladies' team as well. But he has to put out a certain order of batsmen, which means that all the people that aren't good batsmen have to go first. And all the people that are good at batting have to go kind of further down the order. They have to come right at the end. And he said one of the things that really kind of, he has to keep drilling into his players, that if you're not a batsman and you're out first, kind of batting, the best thing that you can do is to swing for the ball as hard as you can, to take the biggest risk. And the reason is because if you hit the ball and you get a four or a six, or you score a couple of runs, it's a bonus. But if you miss the ball and you get out, it doesn't matter because somebody else is coming in who's going to be better. And he said it's so counterintuitive. And so what they often have are people that go out and bat and they're rubbish at at batting, but they do everything they can because it's their kind of intuition is to try and stay in. And so they play a straight bat all the flipping time. And as that's going on, so they're burning through the overs and they can't get the real batsman in in time to actually change the score. And so he just says, if you're out there, Take every single risk that you can. And I just remember, as he's telling me this, I'm listening, I'm thinking, man, if only I could map that, if only I could take that, translate that into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That so often my kind of intuition, because of the cultural oxygen I breathe in, is to play things safe is to play a straight bat because I don't want to get caught out and I don't want to look silly and I don't want to make a mistake. But if I could just be freed up to swing away and to do that with kind of maximum risk, how different would things look? Like how different would things look for us as a family if if our kids saw mum and dad taking risks at all for all for the purposes of the kingdom, all for going as disciples uh, of Jesus Christ. How would that speak to them? And how would it speak to our neighbours? And how would it speak to those that we connect with in social spaces? You know, so often I've spent so much time playing a straight bat. And yet I really believe uh, that Jesus wants to remind us that we're to go out and we're to swing for that ball as hard as we can and with wild abandon, knowing that if we get it right, it's going to be spectacular. And if we get it wrong, it doesn't matter because there's a king that's coming 
there's a kingdom that's coming in its fullness. Um, but in the meantime, in the meantime, if we manage to play our part, and if we manage to notch up a couple of runs, it will make all the difference to somebody else. It will make all the difference to somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus, who's waking up this morning uh, with an eternal destiny, which is not good. But if we take the risk, if we take the risk, something amazing will happen. And if we fall, if we fall and if we fail, it doesn't matter anyway, because something incredible and even more amazing is going to happen. And so, friends, this morning, I want to encourage you in the going part of what it means to be a Christian, what it is to be a disciple. Don't play a straight bat. Please don't play it safe. Time is incredibly short. And I think the season is incredibly right and the harvest is incredibly ripe for us to go and take risks. Whatever that looks like for you, we take a risk this week in the going part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We take a risk. And my prayer is that next week uh, when you gather, you can chat to people about the risk that you took and if you failed, that you will be encouraged and supported and prayed for to go and take a risk the next week. But maybe next week there'll be testimonies. Maybe people will come back and say, I had this conversation. I had no idea that this person was walking through this and how open they are to the message of Christ. So um, I'm going to wrap up now. Um, I just want to pray and just say thank you for, for watching. Um, I hope I've managed to keep you all um, in this time. Um, but it's been such a joy to share with you and, and hopefully uh, just get to come along at some point and, and be with you all in person. Father, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for Gloucester Vineyard. I thank you for the way that you've called them as a church and you've called them as your people. Thank you for Daniel, Emily and their leadership and their leadership team and for all those who are serving in this season. Um, and Lord, uh, we just pray for for all of us that once again we would be reminded that our hearts would be shaped and convicted and that because of that and because of knowing who we are and because of existing in this community of loving one another deeply, that we would go with the message of the gospel and that we would see fruit in all of those different areas of our lives, as we do it in the normal rhythms of how we go about along the way, around the dinner table, in conversation with others. Lord, would you do it all by your spirit and all for the glory of your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Okay, that's all for this week. We hope that blessed you. And if you enjoyed this week's message, then share it with a friend or consider subscribing to the podcast to stay up to date. And if you'd like to get involved with what we're doing here in Gloucester, all the details are on our website, gloucestervineyard.org. Mm-hmm.